Welcome to Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer. I've worked in the animal health industry, and prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. Yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician so they can share their own directions, what's worked, what hasn't, and how they've made it all fit. Thank you for joining me as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support this incredible profession. Today, we have the opportunity to chat with Dr. Carla Gartrell, a veterinarian who is a board-certified small animal internist and associate dean for academic affairs and associate professor in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Midwestern University. She also has a law degree, serves on several committees, and has practice ownership under her belt. And that doesn't even do Carla justice because her name really is ubiquitous with veterinary medicine. Now, I have not said this about any other guest, But for those of you who are listening, I recommend doing an internet search on Carla Gartrell because I don't think we will be able to cover everything in our time together. I mean, I feel like I could pick one of the farthest areas of veterinary medicine, Carla, and then I say, oh, wait, I see Carla's been there. Oh, she's on this too. I mean, your reach is so expansive. It's incredible. Well, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of Scrub Chat. <laughs> your achievements are really remarkable. And, and it's, you know, you're not 80 years old. You're not even 60 years old. So tell us about your childhood. How, how did you begin? Well, I grew up as an Air Force brat. So have lived all over, but started, I guess, life in Germany um, and lived in Germany until I was about 10. But I remember wanting to be a veterinarian probably since the age of seven. And so like many stories, right, like many of us, right, you take in those stray animals and hide them from your parents and, you know, all the same similar stories of us, you know, trying to nurse an animal back to health. But um We finally settled. My father was stationed in California. And so that's where we settled. And I still call California home. Did you have, well, do you have siblings? I do. I am the youngest of five. Because I do wonder, did you feel a sense of, I don't know, competitiveness or like a need to like seek out your niche as like the highest achiever in the family? Because you are incredible. Yeah, no, honestly, not at all. Yeah, our family is just so supportive and collaborative and everybody supported everybody's dreams and really being the youngest, I yeah, I I didn't feel competitive with my siblings, believe it or not. My three sisters are still my best friends. That's wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> they really are. Yeah. And you studied at Tuskegee University as an undergrad. And then what happened? How did you become a veterinarian? This was your childhood dream, of course. Yeah. And I'm going to back up just a little bit. I chose Tuskegee because both of my parents went to Tuskegee. They're not veterinarians, but that's where they met. And so we grew up hearing about Tuskegee all the time. And so I just knew I was going to go to Tuskegee. It was the only school I applied to, which probably wasn't smart. but there was just no other choice. So I had no plan B. So I went to Tuskegee um, in undergrad with plans of going to veterinary school at Tuskegee. And it was the only veterinary school I applied to. Again, probably not so smart. (laughs) I didn't have a plan B, but I knew it would just work out. 
So I applied after three years after I had completed my prerequisites and um, got in the first try, um, which again, I thought was supposed to happen. So, so I just, again, stuck to the plan. And um, when I graduated, you know, I earned my DVM and then bachelor's at the same time, because just through my vet courses, I think I, you know, was able to complete just the final credits at for a bachelor's degree. I want to back up though, to what you're talking about with a plan B. There is no plan B in this. And, and you just stuck with what you were going to do. Do you even have to have a plan B in life? You know, I coach students all the time now, and um, so many of them don't. And so really, I, I think if you don't have a plan B, and I, I never did, you make your plan A work. You just do, right? That's just, yeah, yeah, there's almost like there's not a choice. You so, have to make it work. Yeah, that's what you do. So plan B, right, would be something you would fall back on. And that means you've given up on plan A. So you just do plan A, <laughs> yeah, end of story, right. period, yeah, right. right? Right, this is what I'm doing. I don't know if it's smart, but that's how I approach it. <laughs> I think that's very wise. Well, why not, right? Right. A decade later, you obtained a law degree from North Carolina Central University. What was the impetus to seek out a law degree in the first place? Because here's where I'm going. I think maybe after vet school an internship, a residency, you, you might be, oh, I don't know, burned out maybe a little, but no. I've always loved school and I've always been interested in the law. I think just because it's involved in everything. I think the true stimulus to go to law school actually originated out of a case I had when I was on faculty at Michigan State University. And not to reveal the whole story, but it was an unintentional cruelty case. I felt that, this is going to sound silly, but I felt that the cat wasn't well represented um, in the case. And so I wanted to know as a veterinarian, how could I fight more for this cat that wasn't, um, really didn't have a, a fair say in how things went. And so I was interested in policy and I was really interested in policy for our profession and what could veterinarians do on behalf of the animals that was backed up by laws? And what did law school teach you? Because I imagine a lot could, you could learn a lot just as a veterinarian, but what what did that schooling teach you specifically? So much, honestly. It taught me how to think differently, just, you know, to question everything, I think, and to really see both sides. And so is there legitimacy to both sides of the argument, so to speak. So really to be more open-minded because, right, that's how law is. It's like one side, the other side, and then the law, somewhere in between. And so it taught me to approach issues very differently. In terms of veterinary law, um, it taught me just the fundamentals and the basis, like where do you go? Where do you find the laws? Where do you seek the statutes? How do statutes change? Um, and so I, I didn't know that as a veterinarian. So just to go to the law. And I still do that. I still do that with, you know, issues I have about buying my house or refinancing. Well, what does the law say? You know, I could listen to someone's opinion. And I think it ties closely to being a veterinarian. And so we can listen to opinion and read opinion. But what's the evidence? So it's similar, right? So seeking what's really true about a certain condition. Right. And as, as you as you just explained, it's very useful across the board in all areas of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost like everyone should go to law school. They should. Just think how what the world would be like. Oh, a little scary, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> right. I, I, yeah, I've learned so much about so many things. Yeah, it's just amazing. The law is involved in every single thing. You have experience in both academia and the veterinary industry. In fact, we both worked at Hills Pet Nutrition at the same time. How did you get there? Well, I think it's a fairly interesting story. And so I often talk to my students now about building their building and cultivating their personal and professional network. My network has been amazing just throughout my career. And so one of my lifetime mentors, um, Christine Jenkins, Dr. Jenkins, was at Hills. She knew I was in law school. I was halfway in between um, or halfway finishing law school. So law school, if you go part-time. So I was working full-time during the day. I would go to law school at night. So it's a four-year program. And so I think I had just completed two years. And it was tough. Um, I would be sitting in class and I would get a text about an emergency ultrasound. So I'd have to leave and veterinary medicine always came first. And so if I'd have to stay for a euthanasia, I would stay and I would miss class. And so you could only miss eight classes. And so I think I was, you know, like at number seven, maybe in all of them. But anyway, I had a conversation with Christine and she's like, oh, Carly, you should consider Hills. And I was like, "Mm." you know, I loved practice. I loved being a clinician. And so honestly, almost as a courtesy, I was like, you know, Dr. Jenkins has never steered me wrong in the past. And I will, I'll do an exploratory. I think she even called it an exploratory interview. So I flew out to Topeka, Kansas, had never been to Kansas. And honestly, the people at Hills were just so nice. They were so nice. They were so genuine um, that they had been there for a long time. And just during my interview, I was like, this is a company that I want to work for. So just, a, you know, just great people and I, you know, a great product. And so I was in, I was sold after my interview and seeing what they were doing. I don't know. I thought as an internist, I thought I really knew nutrition. Like, yeah, I'm a boarded internist and found out, right. I didn't know anything. <laughs> I thought my learning curve was steep and I've continued to learn. And so that's what's so exciting, I think, about my career that every single position I continue to learn. And Christine was actually interviewed in season one on Scrub Chat. And she talked about the importance of networking. Yes. And it works. It works. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> As Associate Dean of Midwestern University, you have said, and I- I'm quoting you, Training future colleagues is a substantial responsibility that I do not take lightly. Tell us more about that. So when I think of our students and I think of the investment they've made, right, in terms of tuition dollars and time and trusting us, right? So trusting us as faculty, as mentors, as future colleagues, they are trusting us to train them in a compassionate, tough profession, right? They're doctors. And so that's a heavy responsibility that, you know, I don't think any of us here take lightly. So honestly, every time I talk to a student, coach a student, teach in a classroom, I, in the back of my mind is I can't waste their time. I can't waste their money. And so I do, it's, I I take it very seriously. I really do. In your academic roles on that point, and you were just talking about your interactions with students, many of them are millennials. What challenges do they face that 
maybe you didn't face when you graduated? And then what I'd also like to know is how do you recommend tackling those challenges? Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I think we see millennials and now we're starting on even Generation Z and it is different. And so, you know, a lot of my colleagues will have that, oh, well, when I was in school, you can't, I know you just can't do that anymore. You know, I think this is something that commonly faces our profession. So they have the debt to face when they get out without the earnings to match, match their debt, you know, just even the mental health, the compassion fatigue and all about that. But we just had a meeting. So we have a town hall every quarter with our students, and it's kind of the state of the college address, we talked about mental health. And I said, I want you to remember the passion that you had. And I don't care if it was a child, an adult, the passion that you had to become a veterinarian. And that's what I want you to tap into. And I really think that we can change the perception that everybody has now about veterinarians, right? So I said, I never want us to brag about the high suicide rate or the you know, mental health issues tagged to it, I said, why can't we turn it around? We incorporate into our curriculum mental health courses and talk about boundaries and self-care. We truly try to model a work-life balance through our clinicians. And so, Kim, honestly, I think we can turn this around. I really do. And I think it starts with the students. And so, you know, the challenges they have, it's, and I always tell them, life never stops, right? Life doesn't stop when you're in vet school. And so grit and resiliency, and if you look at the timeline, this four years is just a very short period of time in your career. And I want it to be a lifelong career for you. So how do you approach each day with that innocent passion you know, that you had as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 21-year-old. And so this, as corny as it sounds, I guess that's kind of my mission to instill in these students that, you know, you're, you entered a great profession and I want it to be a great profession for you for life, if, if that's how long you want to pursue the career. And I don't want you to get out because of, of something else that came in and interfered with your, you know, lifelong dream. I really don't. And what's interesting is that I have a quote from you that touches that point and that you said, I help students face these trials knowing there is not an immediate solution to any of them. It takes forecasting and grit to recognize what is coming down the pike and to know that you must find a way to work through it and remain standing. Now, that's a tall order, but it sounds like with what you're saying, you're giving them the tools to do that. I sure hope so. And I don't know that I've figured it all out, but right, trials are going to come, hurdles are going to be there in your path. And so you can be ready for them. So you see that hurdle coming and you've trained, right? So you know you can clear it or you have assistance and someone helps you over that hurdle or you find a way around that hurdle. And so being equipped with those tools and recognizing that, yes, they're going to come, they're going to be there, but I'm going to be okay. Again, I'm going to, those three ways, I'm trained to clear it, someone's going to help me over it, or there's a way around it. We really do try to work with our students. And, and even in our interview process for admissions, we try to focus on grit and resiliency. Like, how can we ask questions or how can we assess through their application, you know, that that they're going to be, you know, there's some hardship, but but it's going to be okay. Let's move on to, as a person of color, one of the themes in your career is increasing diversity awareness within our profession, not just from a racial standpoint, but what I found through my research was, was to, for your point was to include everybody. 
Why is that important to you? Well, I think growing up as a person of color and feeling at times marginalized that, you know, you don't you don't want um, people to experience that. And so if there's anything I can do and I, you know, I, I hope I'm not using buzzwords, but, you know, to be inclusive, then I'm going to make a point, you know, to to eliminate that. And so we actually incorporate cultural competency into our curriculum. And initially it's like, you know, oh gosh, I, you know, I have to be the cheerleader for this, but again, I don't want it to be, oh, here goes Carla again, right? Oh, here she goes, like bringing it up. And so we actually found a white male on our faculty to present that topic. And I think it comes across differently, right? And even just his own, own experiences and, and, you know, the students, we asked for feedback. I think they're very receptive. Midwestern, we're, we actively recruit for a diverse class. We really do. And so as a new school, we are really proud of our rank. And so if you look at the AA. VMC ranking for diversity, we're number four. And so that really does, yeah, that means a, that means a lot for, to me. And I think our students see it. Um, when they come here, um, they see it. We speak on it. We're open about it. You know, it's nothing that we're trying to hide. And why should we? There's no reason to. Right, exactly. You mentioned being marginalized. I'd like to talk about that more. What challenges have you faced in your journey that that have made you yell like, I need to do something about this. This is unjust. Oh, where do I start? Um, so, for example, um, I think at times, and, and maybe it even happens now, that you know, oftentimes as an internist, you receive cases on transfer. So you're not the one that initially takes the case in. It may come in an emergency. It's transferred to you. And so you establish a relationship with the owners, and you're talking to them on the phone and getting permission for it you know, diagnostic test. And when it comes time for discharge, I have seen clients visibly shocked that I am an African-American. I have had clients ask for the veterinarian, assuming that I am a receptionist or a technician more than once. I've had clients actually say, oh, I'm surprised to see that you're African-American. Like okay, and now let's talk about your pet. So, um, but right, and so you know, it's it's so often, often, and I think that people are surprised to see a veterinarian of color. Some will voice it. Some I can see on their faces. Some um, may choose not to come back because of of who their veterinarian was. So, I've seen that, and and I I will talk to our students of color, and I've you know I've actually spoken to campuses about this. But I said, you know what? It's like, if you have the knowledge, um, it doesn't matter. And those clients then don't care. If you know what you're talking about, if you put their animal first and you actually, you know, know what you're doing, they don't care. They truly don't care what you look like or what color your skin is. They want a skilled, knowledgeable veterinarian to help their pet, bottom line. So you get over it. Right. You just, yeah, you have to get over it and keep going. So for students, if they have come into a situation like one of the ones you described, how do you recommend them handling it? Like, for example, if someone says, oh, I'm surprised you were the veterinarian. So I, I don't know. Well, I would just think of the way that, you know, I am. <laughs> right. So, you know, I've, I've even told people 
gosh, I've been in, been in Aaron for, you know, whatever X number of years, I'm here to help you. And so you really do, you have to then just kind of focus on your credentials. I mean, you have to, you have to convince them, um, which I don't think, you know, I don't think that other veterinarians ever have to deal with that. Some others, you know, they don't have to, they don't have to justify their credentials. It's just assume that, oh yeah, of course you're qualified. But yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, you'd have to deal with it. Right. Right. And I even think, well, just as you're saying, you know, I think even gender. Right. I mean, that, that comes through all the time as an issue. So, yeah. As we were talking about earlier about well-being in veterinary medicine and, um, talking about work-life balance, work-life integration, you are, you, you seem like you have a lot on your plate. And I was wondering, is there room for non-veterinary activities in your life, Carla? Yes. Um, I call myself a runner. And so I, I do. I, uh, I just ran a 10K. Hey! In the pancake run. Yeah, yay. So there were pancakes at the end. Um, that was my incentive. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do. So I like fitness being in Phoenix. Um, it's a beautiful city. I moved here for my job. And so I wasn't familiar with Phoenix, but there's tons of outdoor activities. Um, so I've taken up hiking. I've continued, I've, I've, you know, been a runner for years. So I've continued running. I call myself a foodie. So there's great places to eat in, in Phoenix. So Phoenix, yeah, is a, a fantastic city to explore. I feel like what can happen sometimes if someone is always moving forward and their eyes are focused ahead, they don't look sideways. It might even be impossible to be present and mindful because if you're always moving forward towards something else. And when I was researching you and everything I've researched about you, there's so much movement and success and achievement, Carla. You're, it's extraordinary. And I'm curious, what brings you happiness? And and do you look sideways often? So it's, yeah, it's actually funny that you say this. I was just talking to one of my good friends about this. So I am an extrovert. I am a people person. So, you know, what makes me happy is just interacting with people. So honestly, whether it's my neighbors, um, I met one of the coolest people in the grocery store the other day. Um, he is a 76 year old, one of the original black cowboys. And so, you know, now he's going to teach me how to golf and I mean, it's just amazing. So he's in this black rodeo, but, um, so I do, I just see these neat people and then strike up conversations with them. And so people and interactions with people honestly bring me, bring me joy. I do look forward. Um, and I think that you, have to have hope, right? You have to have something to look forward to. And so the sideways things or the, you know, here and now and mindfulness, it's there um, and I recognize it. But again, it's like tomorrow is a new day. I don't want to get caught up and, and stagnate it. And maybe that's the wrong approach, but I truly am a forecaster. Like there's something great at the end of the tunnel and not even the end of the tunnel. There's something great that's going to happen tomorrow. You know, I almost can't wait to find out what it is. That's so exciting. (laughs) What an exciting way to live, Carla. I think so. And I don't know, maybe it's irresponsible, but it truly is. Yeah, it truly is how I live. I wish our listeners could see your face like I can because (laughs) you have, I mean, your grin is enormous. You're like glowing when you talk about this philosophy of life. Yeah. And it's, yeah, 
it it really is how I live. <laughs> My mother again would probably call it irresponsible. Like, yeah, you need to focus. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost out of time, but I want to try to get in a few other questions. What do you know now that you wish you knew back when you were first starting in veterinary medicine? You know, it's it's funny. I think as I get older, um, I've learned that you're not always going to get it right. And I didn't see it that way um, when I was younger. Again, you know, I just had this one pinpoint spot and I, you know, I applied to the one school undergrad and one school vet school and I knew it had to work. And now, you know, looking at options, and I guess my younger self, you know, I would tell my younger self that it's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to take a break. It's okay to pause for a minute. I think when I was so young, I was so driven and that might've shaped my, you know, I'm single. I don't have kids. I don't think that I have regrets, but it might've been different if I had paused early on in life. And it's okay to take a break. It's okay to take a deep breath. And I see that now, but I had a single focus when I was young. And now it's like, I don't know what I want to do, right? So I'm older and like, you know, (laughs) wait, what's next? Somebody help me. So yeah, it's, yeah, a little bit different. But in the end, is there really any right way? I don't think so. I have zero regrets, zero regrets of how things have gone in my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy. Um, I'm him here at Midwestern through, again, my network. And so our my dean, I always tease him. I was like, I used to be your boss. So <laughs> our dean was a resident when I was on faculty at Michigan State. And so now he's my boss. And so I always tell students too, right? You got to be nice to everybody because you never know who will be your boss. And I always threaten them that I'm going to be their receptionist um, years from now. So. <laughs> You never know, just as you said. You never know. Right? Oh, you never know. So I'm nice to all of them for that reason. Absolutely. (laughs) I couldn't agree with you more. So true. Do you have a funny story that you'd like to share with us about um, either with animals or something funny from your career? You know, I don't know that it's a funny story, but I have to say my um, connection with veterinary technicians is... I mean, just so solid. And so those vet techs that I have worked with in my life fed into my life in terms of, I, 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 I say I always want to get a t-shirt. Everything I learned was from a tech. Yeah. Uh, but fed into my life so much that I'm still really genuine friends with them. And I just had the best time at work because of the, you know, certainly the colleagues I work with, but really the technicians. Like we just, so I, I would not be here um, without the techs that I have worked with in my past, honestly. So not a funny story, but a thank you. But a thank you story and an inspirational yeah, to, story too. Yes, to every single one of them. Yeah. Well, I think I want to end this by saying, hey, Carla, let us know when you're on the next lunar landing. You know, I mean, you're worldwide famous <laughs> now. Uh, I see galaxy superstardom in your future. It's okay, incredible. Yeah, this is not the end for me. This is not the end for me. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to let you know what's next. Yeah, let us know, really, because, you know, okay. when you travel to uh, Jupiter, uh, you know, wave. We'll go, hey, there's Carla. Look at her now. I sure will. <laughs> well, it was a delight chatting with you today, and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. 
This concludes another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Please remember to visit VetVance at www.vetvance.com and check out Zoetis Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get more information about life skills such as handling student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetVance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. We would love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. Until next time, this is Scrub Chat.